From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set and to our first podcast of 2019. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on the great guests we have scheduled for the rest of the year on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you downloaded this. In January and February, for example, we'll be having a series about UW's residency program in surgery, and the rest of the year is looking good, too. Today, though, we sit down with a very special guest, Dr. Joshua Mesrich. Josh was our first guest on the podcast way back in 2017. Since we last talked, he's written a memoir that doubles as a history of transplant surgery entitled, When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon. Josh earned his medical degree at Cornell, and we first met during his residency at the University of Chicago. He then did a research fellowship at the Transplant Biology Research Center at Mass General, and a transplant fellowship here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he stayed on and is currently an associate professor in the Division of Transplantation. On the eve of publication, we talk about Josh's new book and the process of writing it. There's a link to purchase the book at the website, surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I know I did. So, Josh Metrich, Big Daddy, welcome back to the surgery set. It's great to be here. Yeah. Am I your first uh, repeat? You offender? are our very first repeat offender from episode one. It is so cool. Right. Like That was a long time ago that yeah, you and I sat down for the first episode ever of the surgery set. It's great to be back here, and it's great that you've done so well with this. And uh, I'm guessing I'll push your ratings up uh, even more. I can't wait for the, for the bump. Because we were talking about something really cool, which is that uh, since we last talked, which was a couple of years ago, you have been largely in secret because I've heard sort of murmurs and then you're sort of like, no, I can't talk about it. Uh, you have been working on a book. That's right. So um, actually over about the last three, three and a half years, I uh, have been working on, sold, and then wrote a book, which is now coming out January 15th, um, which will be titled When Death Becomes Life. It's sort of, I would call it as part memoir, part history of transplant, and then part patient story. Wow. And you're not new to the world of, of writing. This is something that I mean, you've written, obviously, academically before. You've written for The Atlantic in the past. How did you synthesize your, your thoughts and, and find the time to put together a long narrative? Yeah, well, I, um, time is always a challenge. But I, will, I guess I'll answer that by saying I, I've, I love, I've loved reading my whole life. It's like one of my passions. And I guess I attribute that to my parents who made me and my two brothers read two books a week for most of our life. Wow. And uh, they would read the books too. And then at dinner, we would discuss those. And So you had like Mesrich family book club. Absolutely. From a very young age. And of course, Ben, my brother, who's the writer, he is the fastest reader I've ever met. And he also has this incredible memory. So he would blow through these books in like two minutes, whereas I would just toil along. But... I guess that could have played out either way, but I ended up really loving writing. Yeah. And then watching Ben's career in writing Blossom has been this incredible ride for our whole family as well. And your brother, Ben Mesrich, who has written a bunch of stuff that people have probably heard of and is made into movies that probably even more people have heard of, right? So he... That's right. So probably his two most famous books, although he's written, I think, 20. He just sold his Oh, my gosh. First. Yeah. Oh, wow. But um, his two most famous books, one was Bringing Down the House, which became the movie 21. 
and the other was um, yeah the accidental billionaire which became uh, the social network yeah and he he has this genre he he calls himself nonfiction but it's sort of what he calls narrative nonfiction where he gets some of the people to talk to him and then puts together what maybe was likely to have happened or could have happened. Yeah. And, um, you definitely feel reading his books that, that he was in the room, right? He's sort of almost absolutely. like a character, or not himself, but it's as if he was like watching it happen, right? That's right. And, the, and they're, they're wonderful books and they, um, I think they're really exciting and they're really fun to read. Um, he's done incredibly well with them. Yeah. It's, it's been such an exciting ride. And I've always thought I had a book in me or maybe more than one book and it was something I wanted to do. But it ended up being like so enjoyable, such a passion, like I can hardly believe it. Um, Did uh, you just wake up one morning and you're like, okay, now I know what I'm going to write. <laughs> I know what it's going to be. Well, it's interesting. Or did, you, did it take a while to sort of it, figure out the structure? It took a while. So I've always been kind of, so I've always been a lover of history, uh, medical history, uh, as well as kind of cultural history and um, you know the field of transplant is so fascinating because it really kind of came about over a really short period of time so like in the kind of 30s and 40s people thought transplant was science fiction in the 50s into 60s a few people were trying to do it but it still seemed kind of ridiculous and kind of from the 60s to 80s all, all of a sudden it became this reality and the reality is some of those pioneers are still alive. Unfortunately, if you are kind of just dying now, maybe the most famous being Tom Starzl. Right, yeah. I was actually sitting on a boat on a spring break, and while the rest of the family was asleep, I was reading the book Emperor of All Maladies. Yeah. Um, it's kind of an odd thing to read kind of through the night down in Miami, but I was really fascinated by it. And in that book, Mukherjee um, wrote the history of cancer, or particularly like pediatric blood cancer yeah and it's a sort of a biography of a disease right yeah. yeah and then he and of course cancer we all know about cancer everyone has been touched by cancer probably in some way yeah through someone they know but um he used his patience to tell the story of cancer and i was reading it and i was first of all i loved the book although it's a long it's a tome yeah i did it as an audio book like driving back and forth oh, to a yeah. rotation in residency where it was like a 45 minute drive to the hospital so that, that's perfect yeah it was great it's like yeah. half of residency yeah <laughs> But I, I was reading it and I was thinking, I love this book, but I want to do this for transplant. But I want to yeah. do it a little differently. I wanted to include my own story as well. So I wanted to include myself in my own coming of age as a surgeon, my patient's story, and then the pioneers of transplant. And I knew that a lot of them were still around and I thought maybe I can go talk to them. And what I wanted to know is how were they able to do what they did and I want to use me as a narrator that the reader can relate to and say, so this is what it's like to be a surgeon. This is what it's like to make these decisions to have, you know, these patients go through this and then use that as a kind of way to look at what these guys did, which yeah. is so incredible. Yeah. And so I started kind of putting those thoughts on paper. And this is where if when people ask me, like, what advice, you know, do, do I have in terms of people wanting to get started? as a writer when they're not, that's not their primary career. Right. My number one piece of advice would be have a brother who's a best-selling author. Oh, I'm sure, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Can't can, hurt, right? If you can do that. I mean, yeah. the place where he helped me the most uh, beyond just advice was helping me get an agent. Yeah. And that was huge because my agent played a big role in helping me get on paper what it was I wanted to do. So you did that before, I mean, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this sort of pragmatic yeah. element of how you 
how you do this. Like, how do you just like yeah. write a book? You're a doctor. Now you're writing a book. You write a treatment that gets sent out by the agent, and then and then you actually start writing the book after that. That's right. So th- I've learned I've learned a lot about this on the way. Um, so it's very interesting in the world of nonfiction, which is what probably most um, physician type writers would likely write. Yeah. Not necessarily. Typically, you write a treatment or or like a proposal as people a grant, if you yeah, would, right. <laughs> um, which which ends up being kind of your description of what you want to do, but at least in my case, broken into chapters where where an editor could read it and and really get what the story was, but also get a taste of your writing, mm-hmm. and they could. You know, if you haven't written a book before, they need proof that you'll actually be able to pull this off. So it's pretty right. pretty complete. And you do that and sell it before you write the book. Almost no one, I shouldn't say no one, but at least what I'm told is very few editors are looking to buy a complete book right, where you in just, nonfiction. Where an unknown person walks in right. with 3,000 typewritten pages exactly. and says, here's my novel. Right, right that's yeah. probably unlikely unless you're, maybe if you're a really famous person in this story itself. But yeah. you want to have some hand in making that what you want. Yeah. That's very different than the world of fiction, which I'm only learning about. I've not written fiction. But fiction, apparently, editors have a hard time predicting what's going to sell and what's not. And so even huh. my brother tells me if he were to write fiction, even at yeah. this point, he'd probably have to write most or all of the book and would have to shop it versus now he'll write a 10-page treatment and he sells it. Right, um, yeah, yeah. The other piece that actually is important for those out there that want to write a book and outside of what they normally do, it is really important to get something shorter written in a venue, either be a magazine or a website, where people can get a sense that, oh, you can tell a story someone wants to do. Yeah, read. right. And there are many venues. I mean, there's some like The Atlantic, which are wonderful, but there's so many others um, that one can hit up. And some of them can be academic or medically related, but not so much a research paper. Yeah. And that helps a lot when it comes to trying to sell the book. Um, um, so that's something worth looking at as well. Yeah, so you took your, your treatment and your yeah. your biography of having written, you know, some well-received smaller pieces yeah. and, and sort of, do you take it on the road? You know, kind of, so j- just stepping back a little, yeah. I, I've been thinking about writing for a long time. So one thing I've started doing which I personally recommend to budding doctor writers out there. Is, yeah. And I've been doing this for years. Every time I meet a patient who kind of is compelling to me, who has some story or just something about them connects with me, I'll usually say to them at the end of our visit or the end of their time in the hospital, listen, your story is really compelling. I would love to sometime tell that story if you're open to it. Um, I try to make it clear there's no pressure. But if yeah. they seem interested... Um, I don't, like, get a consent form, but I'll, I'll get their contact info, and I'll say, let me, at some point, I might reach out to you and, right. and try to make sure they feel no pressure. And I've been doing that for many years, and so I actually have a list of patients oh, in wow. my office yeah. with different things, you know, the, uh, the Jehovah's Witness who donated a kidney, the patient with Huntington's who donated a kidney, just different recipients who've gone through kind of different challenges right. that I thought was compelling. The prisoner who... Um, stole stuff to get arrested so he could get his health care covered. I, I wrote that story in the Atlantic, but that was um, just a patient that I ran across that I was like, "Wow, we got to, yeah, we got to tell this story." Right, um, and transplant so, has so many of so those stories too, right? And like, some of them, each are one stories. is such a drama. Yeah, so yeah. I've done that even when I go on procurements and I meet the family. And wow, I think people like to tell their story. Um, I try to obviously be sensitive to what they're going through. Yeah, but um, so anyway, so. It's really funny because Ben hooked me up with this agent. He was a f- 
he worked for Ben's agent. So oh, okay. He basically, Ben's agent sent an email and was like, hey, can you represent this guy? <laughs> and I'm sure my agent's name is Eric. Um, I'll leave it at that, I guess. But yeah. he, he was like, okay. Um, I'm sure he was like, what is this going to be? Right. So we spent an hour on the phone and I told him my idea and he said, that sounds great. Why don't you write an outline? And when I sent him the first, and I didn't know what an outline was, right? Like, yeah. I'm like Roman numeral one. <laughs> but when I sent him the outline, I wrote a title, and the title was <laughs> The Legend of Big Daddy. <laughs> because I'm sure all your listeners know that everyone calls me Big Daddy. Yeah, and if you don't know why, go back to episode one and, and proceed them from there. Right? <laughs> That's right. So um, I thought that was hilarious, but my agent um, immediately wrote back and said, no, we're not doing this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but then we actually worked together for an entire year on the treatment. So literally back and forth. Wow where he was like, okay, let's just focus on this part. Can you write this up? And talking about who your audience should be, what level it should be, and then I'd work on that, and then he'd read it and say, okay, you know, work on this, let's focus on this. Hmm. And probably over a few months, it started to feel like, okay, this is starting to be pretty cool. And finally, after about a year, I mean, he was great at just getting me to be able to put on paper what it is I actually wanted to do. Yeah. And he was patient. It wasn't like he would rewrite it for me, but he would just put questions and remarks. And so like everything in, in being a researcher or a surgeon, you got to be good at taking feedback and criticism. And, and he was wonderful at giving that in, yeah. in a good way. Yeah. And so at the end of the year, we had this treatment. And he said, okay, we're ready to go. And so then he sent it to a bunch of publishers and editors. So the way it works is that each... It's kind of actually reminds me of of the world of alcohol where like InBev Budweiser owns like all the companies. Right. And yeah. You yeah. Think, like, you're drinking this craft beer, but it's actually like it's owned by the same guys that do Bud Light. And, <laughs> exactly. Right. And you think you're picturing like it's made out in Oregon or yeah. or somewhere in Wisconsin. So the writing industry is kinda like that too. They have like Penguin and Random House and like when you look they're all kind of owned by the same corporation. Yeah. But, right. Um, but anyway, so there are a whole bunch of imprints and each imprint is owned by something bigger, which is owned by something bigger. Wow. So um, each imprint typically will have an editor and a publisher, um, and they'll have some sort of budget, and then that editor will pick projects, yeah. and they're kind of judged on how those do. So he sent around the treatment, and then I didn't hear anything for a while, and I was getting stressed out, and then he called me and said, all right, we've got six interested imprints. Wow. Writers. Yeah. So... I went to New York and I interviewed with all of them. Okay. And it was a blast. And it's actually like you like you walk in and you sit down and they say, you know, yeah. prove to us you can do this book. Well, it's actually each place has its own vibe. Yeah. And this is where I started to feel really cool, right? Okay. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm used to the world in hospitals and and uh, you know the world of writing has always fascinated me. And you just walk. Each one has its vibe. Some are like they're young and they write kind of trendy. Things. Some are older, some are more like academic, and yeah. you go in and you just get this taste for what that imprint is like. And I just really enjoyed yeah. meeting these people who who make these books that I just love. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I went to these six different interviews, and each one you'd have an editor, um, the a publisher. They might not be the head publisher, but a publisher. Yeah. And then they actually have a bunch of PR people huh. because they're trying to assess, you know, can we sell books? Can we market this guy? What is this package going to look like? Yeah. And they're also trying to show you, we can sell your book, we can market right. it, you know, we can market it. Yeah. And um, they've all read the treatment, and usually they're very, very complimentary, yeah. almost too much, to be perfectly honest. So I interviewed with six, and then three of them ended up 
interested. So okay. it's quite interesting because they were three quite different. One, actually, interestingly, two of them were both Harper Collins imprints. So in okay. a way, they worked for the same. Company. Yeah, but they're like subgroups working against each other. Yeah. And the third one was Dutton. Okay. Is an imprint. I don't. I don't remember what their owner is. Yeah. And the Dutton one was this older guy who's published a lot of kind of professionals books, and he has a few bestsellers, but not any huge ones. Yeah. But he just loved the treatment, and he was like, I want to do this book so bad, and I could see this being multiple books, and I really, and he was, yeah. and, and it was very flattering. Right, sure. But I also was, it was almost too much. Yeah. <laughs> the second one, it was this really young house, it was Day Street, which okay. is owned by HarperCollins, and Day is a very, has done very, very well. They've done some really big books, some political books that are huge that are at the top of the bestseller now. Yeah. And, and it was this really young, cool vibe. Everyone was super cool and super good looking. Yeah. They had cool music playing. <laughs> I definitely was, you know, I probably should have been wearing leather. Right, yeah. <laughs> and um, I have to, I felt very young and, and cool in there. Right, and, it brought um, you an artisanal tea of some sort. <laughs> totally, right. totally. I felt like, I, I was like, I should work here because this, you know. Yeah. This yeah. is like a cool part of New York. And right. they're all these beautiful houses. And then um, the thir- the Harper imprint, and Gail Winston was the editor. This was the one I ended up going with. But when I went in there, it was totally different. So it was Gail, who's a very premier kind of New York editor. Her t- her two sons are like Simon Rich and Nathaniel Rich. She was she's okay. used to be married to yeah uh, to Frank Rich from the New York Times. Right. Oh and, my gosh. Um, she's done a bunch of Pulitzer Prize winners and that But what I liked so it was just her and the publisher, who's now I think the head publisher for Harper Collins. Oh wow. They didn't bring PR people and. Gail said, listen, I've read your treatment, and we can do all the PR stuff that these other guys do. Like, I don't want to spend yeah. time on that. Right. Um, she's like, but I think your treatment is really amazing, but I also think it's going to be really hard. And let's hmm. talk about, like, what the challenges are going to be. Oh, interesting. And I was yeah. like, this is really great. Like, Because I'm a first-time writer, and I want to write something really great. The selling doesn't matter to me if it's not great, right? Right. You, you have a pretty good day job. I have a good day right? job. Um, most and, days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and we're, we're definitely used to in surgery, like, getting that kind of, like, direct feedback. Like, yeah. that's what I feel like we're, we're well primed for that. Right? Exactly. The sort we're, of, like, we're used to like, this is going to be hard. Exactly. Here, let me help you work harder, right? Like, that's residency. Exactly. Yeah. We're used to, like, trying to take on these tasks that you're not quite sure you can do it, but you yeah. feel like you can, yeah. and you're going to need help. And I just, I felt like she, I think I'm going to write the best book with Gail. Yeah. And um, the selling is great, but what matters to me is that I write something that's meaningful. Yeah. And of course I want to sell it. And so that said, that sounds obvious now. When I walked out of there, I was like totally unsure. I, w- I was loved them all and, you know, so... Yeah. So that was that experience. Then I went, I went back, and um, then I didn't hear anything for like two weeks. Yeah. And I'm freaking out. Right. And my my agent um, Eric Loopfer is his name. Yeah. I say his name, um, who's fantastic, and he's repped some really big people. This book, Bad Blood, that's out now. He's oh, I that. love that he's book. That incredible. Yeah. Yeah, and a bunch of other big books. But um, wow, awesome. He's a very mellow guy. He's like the perfect agent for me, but if you're someone that needs like everyday feedback, like he's not gonna be that guy. Yeah. But um, finally after like, and I felt like I shouldn't call. I don't want to call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So finally after like two weeks, I sent him a text and I'm like, so are we, are we done? (laughs) (laughs) Over. And interestingly, I was sitting with my wife and I was about to give a talk 
at this ethics meeting I was speaking at huh. at UW. It was like a symposium. Here. Yeah. And right as I'm about to get up, he texts me and he's like, "No, we're in the middle of an auction." <laughs> he's like, he's like. Those three that I mentioned yeah. all really want it, and we're doing an auction. So basically, what's happening is one gives a bid, and then I turn to the next one and say, "That's there, but the next bid." He's like, "We're already up to a couple hundred thousand dollars." Oh. and I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> I had no idea." Right. And I'm wow. Like, oh, he's like, "It's going great." So I'm texting with Ben, telling him that, and, yeah. and they're calling me to go up to give this talk, right. and I give my wife Gretchen the phone. Yeah. And um, it was a really exciting talk, actually. So was, cool. Right. But, no, of um, course. So then interesting, the way the auction works is they all, they actually all decide on the same price, I guess. There are yeah. different ways to do an auction. So like some of my brother's auctions, they don't know what the others have been. So they oh, just okay. go and you make one bid. Yeah. Um, it's sort of a silent auction. It's a silent auction. Yeah. Kind of more like what might happen with a house. But, yeah. um, but this one was kind of competitive, but they would all end at the same number. Huh. It's okay. kind of odd. Interesting. And again, I didn't care so much about what the number was, but I just wanted someone that was going to actually want to do this. Yeah. So anyway, so they all ended up the same, and then I had like a week to decide. Yeah. And I agonized, agonized, agonized. I found, I reached out to a bunch of writers who I know through band, and I realized no one will really tell you what to do. They don't, they don't want to go out on the line and say, work with this person or that person. So right. it was hard. You never to know who you're going to want to work with again. Yeah. I got great advice from um, Jake Greenberg. Many of you, you know Jake Greenberg, great yeah. surgeon extraordinaire. But his brother is a big um, editor, uh, I think, at Random House. Oh, right. Okay. Actually, he passed on my treatment, which is <laughs> <Nice>. hilarious. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it was actually bet because um, then I was able to call him and just get kind of inside advice. Yeah. He was super helpful oh, cool. at that. But um, I still, when I see him, make fun of him because... I'm sure, well, I'm sure when the book is massively huge. Yeah, when he feel bad, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I went with Gail. You know, it was amazing. Yeah. Then you start writing in earnest, right? You've, you, you're sort of, you have to build out this. Right. So then you're kind of like, okay, what do I do now? Yeah. Like, part of me wanted to just throw out the treatment and just go write something totally different. Yeah. um, Foot in the door. So I, you know, I had a few talks with Gail and I was like, how should I do this? And she's like, well, you can do it however you want. I'm like, should I write the whole book and then send it to you? Should I write a chapter and send it to you? She's like, more people write the whole book, but why don't you do whatever feels comfortable? So I said, okay. So I I started writing, and I wrote like three or four chapters. Okay. And I sent them to her. And I got to publish a second book. I actually have a talk I'm working on called The Cutting Room Floor. (laughs) (laughs) Because I wrote some hilarious chapters that she came back and was like, listen, chapter one. And it was about kind of my med school interview. It's a hilarious story. Yeah. She's like, we need to cut the whole thing. <laughs> she's like, I just... This is, gotta, the tone is wrong. She's like, you got to trust different me book. on this. Like, yeah. you, you got to develop a rapport. It's a sort of hysterical chapter that I can give you the story if yeah. you want. But um, it's sort of like a goofy... If you know me, you'll like, oh, okay, okay. But, a goofy, really? <laughs> tell me more. Yeah. It's, it's a hilarious interview story, which I can tell later. Yeah. But, um, I read her comment, but she was like, then she gave really constructive stuff, like, this is the direction I want you to go. I think you're really getting it here. Yeah. So it was a good, the good and the bad. Yeah. So then I talked a little bit to my brother, Ben, and he gave me a couple of pieces of advice that I want to share. They work great for me. They may not work for everyone, but this is yeah. what I recommend. Number one, he said, when you sit down to write your book, just write. He's like, don't worry if it's good. 
don't worry if it's if it starts di- diverging off, digressing, just write. He said, because mm-hmm. the number one reason people don't write a first book is they just never finish it. They just like get tired. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so just write. They're just afraid write. that it's not perfect on the yeah, first first time. draft. And then yeah. they get they get derailed. They get yeah. this writer's block. So he's like, just write. Just sit down and write whatever seems right. Mm-hmm. He's like, that's number one. And he said, number two. This is what this worked for me. He said, when you write, the hardest thing is to get going. He's mm-hmm. like, once you get going, it's like fine. So what he said was, never finish at the end of a chapter. Yeah. He's like, finish either halfway through a story or even halfway through a sentence. Stop. And then, like, you'll just start finishing that, and next thing you know, you'll be going. And Very for cool. me, that was phenomenal. Yeah. I suppose there are probably people who would say that wouldn't work for them. Yeah. But. And then the third thing he said that I didn't really follow was drink massive quantities of alcohol. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the story of writers. Ben actually right. doesn't drink it all. <laughs> the Ben Faulkner <laughs> approach. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ben, ben actually yeah. doesn't drink it all, but, like, most writers are alcoholics. But yeah. that isn't the advice. The other thing he said was... Um, he tries to write by saying he has to write a certain amount each day. So he'll say, like, I got to write 20 pages a day. And if he writes that in an hour, he's done for the day. If it writes, takes him eight hours, he spends eight hours. I was so obsessed with this project and attacking it so crazily that I just would go and go and go and go. Yeah. Um, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I didn't limit myself on pages. That was one thing I didn't follow. Mm-hmm. Um, I found, like, this was, you asked me about, like, managing time. Yeah. So my life, everyone's different, but my life has been a um, um, a series of passions or obsessions. So maybe there's some people that want to spend a whole career, get really good at something, and then be good at that for a really long time. Yeah. For me, it's been, I attack each kind of passion, like want to master it, love it, can't wait to jump out of bed at four in the morning and go after it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like once I've gotten to a certain level, I do feel like, okay, what's... What's like the next? What's thing next? Be? Yeah. And so for me, I was so in love or passionate or obsessed with writing this book that it was it was actually hard to do anything else. Yeah. But I found that like every morning at four, I was jumping out of bed and I'd write till six till the kids got up. I didn't write a lot at night because I was so tired. Yeah. But then every weekend from like six a.m. until seven p.m., I literally would write all day. Wow. And when we go on vacation, I would write. I mean, it was maybe that's kind of bad, but I. I had so much joy from yeah. it. The kids you, may you not. You had to do it, it right? Yeah. <laughs> and so that's... Your kids will have their own books, right? I mean, probably. My, my absent writer father, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Other than messed up kids who, right, who complain about their... Um, but I, it just was great. And um, the only thing that wasn't good was my lower back, which got completely demolished by this. <laughs> but I thought surgery was bad for the back. <laughs> Actually, Sitting in, is not so good either. Yeah, yeah. So uh, next time I'll do that. Yeah. But so then I wrote, I wrote, I wrote. I wrote for like a year straight. And I, after that first thing, I had no interaction with Gail. And at the <laughs> end of the year, this is really funny. So an average book, an average trade book, is 60,000 to 120,000 words. Okay. Probably aiming for the 80 to 100,000 words. They don't do by pages because every page can be different. Yeah. My first draft was 300,000 words. Wow. <laughs> Which is like the length of like War and Peace. Yeah. So you had, you had a lot of stuff you could... Trim. I was telling my brother about this, and he was like, what are you doing? It's really long. <laughs> but I knew that there was tons in there that, like, had digressed off yeah. and would be cut. But I I just listened to his advice. So then I was like, mm, maybe I should show this to Gail. But, like, what's she going to say? She's going to be like, you're a freak. <laughs> um, I had read this cool Atlantic article by a famous writer who wrote the first draft. It was by Thomas Ricks. He's a, he's a best-selling yeah, sure. writer. He wrote, the first draft is for the writer 
the second draft is for the editor and the third draft is for the reader. Yeah. But I had this first draft and I'm like, what if I've gone completely in the wrong direction? Yeah. Um, I want to show this to somebody. And I couldn't, Ben was not going to read it. There's no way. <laughs> right. And my mom would probably say it was great. Yeah. You know, and right. I, I would not show this to Gretchen. This is just, I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. So I said, you know what? I sent Gail a note and I said, Gail, can I, I've written a draft. It's way too long and I don't want you to read it carefully, but I want to show it to you and just mm. have you say like, is this kind of the right direction? Yeah. And she's like, okay, um, that's fine. If you think it's ready, you know, they'll never like commit. She's right. Like, if yeah. You think it's ready. So. Yeah. So I sent it, and then came the excruciating month of like no contact. Oh God. Right. <laughs> and I keep waiting for the email of like, let's just call this off. Yeah. Um, Thanks for trying. Right. They yeah. so they pay you like in a, they give you an advance, so they give you the money gets paid in like four payments. Okay. And the first payment comes when you sign when you sign. Yeah. The second is when you give them like a completed an accepted draft. Okay. The third is when it comes out, and then the fourth is like within a year. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm not spending the first one because that's going back. Because <laughs> in theory, you'd have to pay them Right, back, you have to give I, it back, yeah. I don't know that they really do that because I think writers would get afraid of them. But Yeah, yeah. They'd starve to death, probably. Most writers would starve to death. But um, I was like really freaking out. I'm like, yeah. do I reach out to her? You know, what do I do? Yeah. Um, so then finally, at a month, I get this email. Yeah. And it says, Josh. You told me to kind of look this over kind of briefly and not, you know, not really read it heavily. But she's like, editors don't really just ever read something. <laughs> That's not an option. Yeah. They don't skim. And yeah. she's like, so as you pointed out, this is way too long. But she's like, I went ahead and just edited 100,000 words of it, <laughs> huh. and which is a lot. I mean, yeah. it's like a third of it. And yeah. she was like, I want you to read that and we can then have a conversation. And then I want you to apply that to the rest. Wow. And so that's um, so that was my first feedback. And then I spent, you know, we spent about a year, year and a half going back and forth. Wow. Getting it down to a hundred thousand words. Yeah. And believe it or not, I still loved every second of it. Yeah. Like I really right. enjoyed Just it. Just that refining and home. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the editing was going to be hard, but it, it was great. Yeah. It was great. The only part of the writing I didn't like was the copy edit. So like once it's all done, yeah. some copy editor goes through like every word. Uh, and that's excruciating. Yeah. And you have to... And then you have to decide, do you, are they taking your voice away? Are they right? Yeah. You know, you're exhausted because you've been through this. So that was, but that's like a three week process. Other than that, I loved every second. Fantastic. And it's, it's, it gave you an opportunity, right? It's, it's partly your voice, but you were also interviewing people, yes. right? I flew around and talked to every kind of transplant pioneer I could, both locally and nationally, and spoke to international figures. Yeah. Um, you know, Probably the, the best one was Tom, not the best, but the most famous one was Tom Starzl, of course, the father of liver transplant. And I taped them all, of course, at, with their consent. Yeah. I got it all transcribed. So I have hours and hours. Oh, of, wow. Like with Sir Roy Calm. Of an oral history of yeah. transplant. And yeah. it was great. And some of the people, I had to work hard to get them to agree to talk to me. Some of them were more forthcoming. And that was so great. Like, what? What an incredible experience. And I didn't just ask them what happened, because I've read everything that's happened, but I really asked them, like, how were you able to do that? Like, did you think this was going to work? Did you think you were going to end up in jail? Right, yeah. And I even gave them some What did it feel life. like when your sixth liver transplant in a row just yeah, died a, I mean, a horrible death, which is the story of the origination of liver transplant? Absolutely. I mean, stars have went through tiny deaths brutal. on the table. People writing petitions to get him out of Denver. Yeah. Even when he went to Pittsburgh, 
after he thought things were going well, his first like five patients died on the table, and I presented him some stories I've been through to get his take, and yeah, it just that was really great, and um, I think these stories are captured. Like I couldn't write every single thing in the book, but I hope that I was able to capture their struggles and challenges, how it applies to the things we do, you know, could it happen now? Like, these are human beings, like, just like we are. How are they able to do that? Of course, I'm, I'm very sad that Starzl won't be able to read this since he did die, but, uh, you know, hopefully some of these guys will be able to read it and, and get something out of that as well. And so it's the story of these, these titans, right, who lived in our own time, who at our age were, like, trying to invent this thing that at the time seemed impossible. Right. Um, it's your story is of coming of age as a transplant surgeon in sort of a world where that's become right. a somewhat normalized thing. Um, right. And it's the story of patience. Yeah, so I, I have the book broken up. So the first part is like my coming of age as a surgeon. But what I do is I play with time. So I start out, actually it starts on an airplane yeah. during a storm during a procurement. Yeah. And then I come back to UW and um, one of my partners, Tony D'Alessandro, is doing the transplant. Then um, then I, I, I veer into like, my own kind of experience with a liver patient uh, and then or actually a kidney patient and then I say like but how did this happen and then I'll jump back yeah and I actually so I, I to Joe Murray or whatever to Joe Murray. Right? so yeah. I actually in the book I cover like Alexis Carell who's the father of kind of the vascular anastomosis but right. also called the first transplant surgeon which is fasc- he's a fascinating character yeah. bit of a Nazi sort of Nazi-ish <laughs> if you will. but he won a Nobel Prize and almost won a second and then I tell the story of dialysis. I tell the Joe Murray uh, and Roy Collins story of kidneys. I tell the story of liver transplant. I, and then I do a big section on cardiac, um, both cardiac bypass and then cardiac transplant, which yeah. those guys are have the most amazing. And I do use my own experiences on cardiac. And, you know, and so I jump back, a lot of jumping back and forth. So a lot of the sections will have the date and the time and some of it's present time, some of it's past. Yeah. It took a long time to make that flow and not be choppy. Then once I finish the history, I do a section on the patients. And so that's probably about six patient stories who we've transplanted. Yeah. Then I do the donors, and I do some, don- some sadly, some deceased donor families losing young children or family. Yeah. But what the gift meant to them, and then some living donors. Wow. And then I do a, a chapter on xenotransplant, and then I end with kind of my reflections on being a surgeon and it's called So You Want to Be a Transplant Surgeon. I'm sure people know the book So You Want to Be a Surgeon yeah, which yeah, yeah. many of us used when we were applying in a surgery. But I really, I hope I capture not just transplant surgery but what it's like to be a surgeon. What it's like to make these decisions to be right a lot but wrong enough yeah. to have patients die, to wonder would this have happened to someone else? You know, did I make the right decision? Should I take this guy back? You know, the, the life that we live with the one eye open at all times. Yes, right. They're like, uh, never sleep soundly again profession. But it, but, yeah, but it's not a negative book. Yeah. I think uh, surgery is amazing. It's very challenging. Yeah. It's sometimes a very tough life, but it is amazing what we get to do. And my wife read it. She who's came a surgeon? At, who's a surgeon yeah. who I probably was most fearful of her reading it, of anyone. Justifiably. Um, she's a good critic. She's read some of my stuff. I'm still yeah. recovering. And I've watched yeah. all of her. And, of course, I respect her greatly. But I I thought she'd be like, oh, no, it's really good. But she was sort of blown away by it. Admittedly conflicted, but nevertheless. Yeah. But she said, you know what? I read it, and it made me want to go do an operation. And I was really ah, that's awesome. psyched about that. Because yeah. I read about how hard it is, but also, like, the amazing thing to work so hard to get good at something and to work with your partners and with your 
So that was really, I was really excited to hear that. Yeah. I'm trying to write a book that made, oh, we worked so hard. And right, right, right. But, that, sucks, but it's know. an extraordinary, also an extraordinary privilege in like. And a burden. Privilege right, and a burden. And a burden and, and the opportunity to sort of, yeah, have this like kind yeah. of funny superpower where you can take people apart totally. and put them back together again. Yeah. Totally. And so I, I have a chapter on, uh, of course, uh, called Complications. And yeah. uh, as every surgeon probably would. And I go through some really unbelievable complications I've had where I just completely made a mistake or forgot to do something yeah. and I write about it and I write about the patient's view on it and um, I, I think uh, I think it's going to really allow people who I want docs to read it but really the goal is people who like to read like Doris Kearns Goodwin or or McCullough or you know the Wright Brothers right. would read this and really learn like what this is understand like the history of it yeah in a, in a but for a historical event that that is in many ways ongoing and certainly like you know the origin of it it was like a time that we can all remember and absolutely um and and it's still you know i mean transplant i mean it's transplant could could, is going to be all is going to continue to evolve in amazing ways right like yeah i mean i the second to last chapter is is on xenotransplant and i i contemplated whether to include it yeah because i think we're probably going to see some amazing things in the next 10 or 20 years the stuff in the past was kind of a failure, but they're right. fascinating what people were doing in the 60s, actually. Yeah. Um, so I included it. Um, just baboon hearts and things, uh, right, yeah. that people tried early on and, like, yeah. And just in livers. They were just right. throwing them in, and um, th- those characters are pretty amazing, too. Right. So, yeah, I mean, so I, it's not, like, a complete history, and, like, a medical historian will probably raise many flags. Yeah. But, but that wasn't the goal, and so in the front I have a, a, a starter that says, this is not a complete history, and I list... There are a couple of really wonderful histories um, that people can look at if that's what they want to read. Yeah. Um, but I certainly cover, I think, some of the major. And I have a chapter on brain death and what is death. Yeah. It, it's very. I mean, ethicists know this, but transplant played a huge role in defining brain death, and some of that is quite conflicted. I mean, Joe Murray was basic, basically, you know, one of the two people that wrote that JAMA paper on brain death, and he was one of the instigators saying we need to define this. So you can see how conflicted that could be at the world's most famous transplant surgeon. Right, right. Defining brain death. Yeah, I need um, organs. Allow me to define the criteria right. by which I can get them, right? So I really yeah. go deep into that. I think it was actually a great gift to all of us to define brain death, but I think at the same time, there are a lot of ethicists now that are starting to question that definition, and there have been some, you know, that young girl who died after um, um, her tonsillectomy and the family didn't want to... Uh, withdraw the breathing tube even though she was brain dead. Right, um, yeah. Some of those cases are filtering through the legal system. So we could actually have some changes in definition of brain death in the not-too-distant future, depending on what the Supreme Court looks like. And, right. And so it's probably something salient to think about yeah. um, now. I'm hopeful that people in our community will love this book, but people outside will equally uh, uh, get a lot of joy out of it. Yeah, it sounds so fantastic. I can't wait to read it. By the time this podcast comes out, it should be right around the corner. But I've already pre-ordered oh, mine nice. on Amazon. Um, right. It's got a Kirkus starred review. It's uh, it's got blurbs from a lot of people we've heard of, and I can only imagine that that when uh, when it hits shelves, people will be talking all about it. So thank you so much for coming in, and uh, we're excited to uh, hopefully we'll see the movie. Yes, yeah, definitely the. And I've already <laughs> clarified that if there's a movie, Brad Pitt will be playing me. So. Well, I would imagine, right? That's a condition of any kind. Of course. Yes. Of course. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for stopping by. I look forward to seeing you back on the podcast uh, the next time you do something fantastic. Can't (laughs) be, won't be long. I'd love to be the the first third third timer. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks, John. Thanks. Next time on The Surgery Set, we speak with Dr. Charles Friel. 
He's the chief of colon and rectal surgery at the University of Virginia and the surgical director of the Digestive Health Center of Excellence at UVA. We talk about his personal journey into surgery. For anyone interested in being a surgeon themselves, I can't recommend it enough. And if you enjoyed today's program, please take a minute, sometimes even less, to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you downloaded your podcast. Thanks for listening. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.